0: You're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from
1: Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. And it's Shark Week! Today, special guest Forrest Galante, host of Extinct or Alive on Animal Planet, will explain how we search for lost species in the open ocean. Then you'll learn about the two types of nostalgia and how they can influence your well-being.
0: Let's satisfy some Curiosity.
1: About you, but I feel like it could be pretty hard to find animals from species that are supposedly extinct, let alone ones that are in the ocean. That's kind of a big place, after all. But that's exactly what Forrest Galante did earlier this week on his Shark Week special, "Extinct or Alive: Land of the Lost Sharks." And today he's going to help you understand just how he does what he does: underwater. We asked Forrest, "What do you do? Just throw a dart on a map and go dive there? Well, no. It's a bit more strategic than that. Here's Forrest.
2: It's very targeted and we narrow it down. So take, say, the white-tip weasel shark, for instance, right? We take, where was the last reported sighting? Doesn't matter if it was 100 years ago, right? It was in this region. So we, we know that's the region. Okay, what is the shark's family? It's in the weasel shark family, right? We know that they're shallow inshore animals typically based on other weasel sharks that are still extant. Okay, great, so they're inshore, what else narrows us down? Well, we think that some weasel sharks are shallow water breeders that require estuary systems. Okay, great, so now we wanna target it to the mouth of an estuary system, right? So now we know it's shallow. Now we look at the the animal's anatomy, right? We look at the body shape of it. Oh, well, it's got a downward facing mouth. This means that it's likely preying on crustaceans. Where do crustaceans live? Well, they live in the sand, right, not on the reef. So you start you start painting this picture in your head of what all the right conditions are of where to search, and then you throw the dart at the dartboard and go, okay, this is as much information as I have to work on based on all the clues that I've added up, based on the the environment, the habitat, the species, et cetera. Now you throw the dart, right? So you've maybe narrowed it down to uh, 10 square miles, a hundred square miles, who knows? But at that point, that's when it, it becomes, you know, boots on the ground. As the military says, ground truth, right? Information provided by direct observation. And that's, That's the difference between being an academic in an office and saying, I think it's here in the map, right? And being the person on the ground that's like, okay, that here on the map is a giant circle. I'm now going to just throw the dart in that circle and try and get lucky using all the tools and tricks and techniques that I have.
1: And speaking of that, I I know you were using some pretty cool technology to both document and track these animals. Do you have a favorite? Was there something that you were especially excited about?
2: In this show, in Land of the Lost Sharks, the thing that I was most excited about is the same thing that you find in the frat house on Saturday night, right? You see that that fluoro diving, which is basically black a black light. It's not. It's a blue spectrum. It's slightly different, but you get the idea. It's like it's like the thing in the frat house on Saturdays where the black lights are on and everybody's wearing their white t-shirts with the highlighter party. We did that and took it underwater fluoro diving, and it was. I think I say it in the show. It's like Alice in Wonderland. It's like I'm not a drug guy, but I imagine it's like what some crazy drug hallucinogenic trip is like, where things are just popping and glowing. and things that you've never noticed before are brilliant orange or lime green and they're they're glowing like nothing you've ever seen before. You just you feel like you're on an entirely different planet. It does not feel like you're on this planet one bit. and and to do that fluoro diving, First, I mean, it's not like I invented that technology. It's been around for a little while. But to do that in a place that's never had it before and see species light up that, you know, I, we don't even know how many of these have been documented as glowing. But to live in that kind of world, this Alice in Wonderland, out of space feeling world, drifting in three dimensions of space underwater, seeing things, these neon colors. I mean, that was it was mind blowing. I, I almost forgot I was looking for the shark. It was so exciting. <laughs>
1: I think and I think someone mentioned on the show that that's that's how some of these sharks actually see, right? They Correct. See an-
2: yeah. So the way the science came about was about 10 years ago. Scientists right here in California, where I live, figured out that a couple sharks actually glow under this blue light spectrum and that they're using that to see and, and to pray and that they have this amazing ability to use blue light as a, as a mechanism for sight. So what we did is is we looked at the family of sharks that that animal, swell sharks and horn sharks, are in. And then we looked at the benthic, which means like living on the bottom sharks that we were looking for. And we're like, wow, these are actually very closely related. Maybe the sharks we're looking for will glow the same way the ones in California do. And, you know, add to that the fact that the waters where we were in that specific part of South Africa are pretty similar to the waters in Southern California, temperature wise and everything else. We're like, you know what, let's give this a try and see if... We find these sharks. Now, uh, spoiler alert, we didn't find the sharks on the fluoro dive, but what we did find was incredible habitat and prey source, and we're able to see the way that we believe these sharks do see in that environment. So it was great for furthering our understanding of what those animals see and what things would target them, right? It's like, if you're hungry... And you walk into a mall and you look around and you see the food court, you're like, oh, OK, that's where the hungry person's going to be. Right. And that's kind of what we were seeing underwater. We put on these these yellow filters and used our blue lights and we're like, where is the prey source? And that's exactly what we found using these lights.
1: So, yeah, Forrest and his colleagues start their search by studying previous observations and learning about the kind of ecosystem the species is likely to be found in. And tricks like fluoro diving can help, too. Sounds like a lot of rigorous academic work, right? Well, Forrest told us that's not the only way to catch a fish. During the second leg of his Shark Week expedition, he and his team got some help from an unexpected source. This is a great story.
2: Word had got out that I was in town after we left Cozy Bay and went into Shelley Beach, the southern region, and some dive master reached out to me. This guy named Adrian is like, hey, man, you know, I'm a dive master. I've been filming for 20 years. I filmed something like I don't know, six weeks ago, whatever it was that I've never seen before. Do you want to take a look at it? And I'm like, yeah, of course. And I tell Dave and I'm like, Dave, let's go. Let's go check this out. Right. And this, you know, this was a citizen scientist, a person who was a dive master, dive for fun, carried his GoPro with him, wasn't an academic, wasn't a hardcore adventurer like I am or, or you know, a hardened academic like Dave, just just a regular dude who loves scuba diving, who went out there, filmed this thing that he hadn't seen before Heard I was in town and was like, hey, man, do you want to come and see this and see if it's anything special? Well, turned out it was something extremely special. It was the lost ornate sleeper ray, the Electrolux, which is a species of electric ray, very closely related to sharks. And Dave and I were just flipping out. And the reason we're flipping out is because this, first of all, this was a huge achievement to film this thing and see it and find it. But secondly, like this was citizen science to a T, right? This was the kind of person coming out of the woodworks who found something weird who has just made a massive contribution to science and understanding just from being someone who was brave enough to raise their hand and say, hey, I've got something different over here. And I think because of that, like I said, I think it might actually be my favorite of the three discoveries because I didn't make it. A citizen science made it. Someone who was inspired by what people like myself and Dave do came out of the cracks and said, look at what I've found, even though he didn't even know what he'd found. So it was um, just like a huge success.
1: Amazing, right? That's a great reminder that you don't have to be a scientist to make contributions to science. Again, that was wildlife biologist and conservationist Forrest Galante. You can see him looking for and finding even more species on his show, Extinct or Alive, on Animal Planet and Animal Planet Go. And you can find links to learn more in today's show notes.
0: We're all familiar with the feeling of nostalgia, that bittersweet longing for a place and time from the past. But not all nostalgia is created equal. According to Harvard professor Svetlana Boym, there are two types, and the one you embrace can have a big influence on your well-being. Want to learn more? Of course you do. Although the word nostalgia wasn't coined until the 17th century, it has Greek roots. It's made up of the words nostos, which means return home, and algos, or longing. It's these two components that make up Boehm's two nostalgia types, restorative and reflective. Restorative nostalgia deals with the return home portion. It makes you want to reconstruct and relive the way things were in the past. Reflective nostalgia is all about longing. It lets you simmer in those yearning feelings while accepting that the past is the past. So for example, if you were to listen to an old mix CD from your senior year of high school, You might think about the hopes you had as a teenager and marvel at how different your life turned out. That amused acceptance is a cornerstone of reflective nostalgia. On the contrary, if that music made you feel as though life was better then, when you didn't have to deal with all the complexities of adulthood, it might make you take action to change your life, and maybe for the wrong reasons. That's restorative nostalgia. And it's the reason people do lots of things, from calling old exes to reinstituting traditional conservative religious governments. Unfortunately, the past that restorative nostalgia urges you to recreate isn't real. You probably remember the good times while forgetting all the less pleasant things that came with them, especially when it comes to calling your exes. The good news is that whether nostalgia is reflective or restorative has less to do with the actual content of our memories than it does with our expectations about what those memories can do for us. It's your attitude that makes all the difference. So the next time you're struck by a nostalgic memory, try to be content with the feeling it gives you instead of pining for the way things could be.
1: Before we wrap up, we want to give a special shout out to a new podcast miniseries. Shark Week is almost over, but if you're hungry for more shark content, then check out Discovery's Daily Bite podcast. It features marine biologist Luke Tipple doing exclusive interviews with the stars of Shark Week, learning from the top shark scientists on the planet, and getting a behind-the-scenes take on what really happened when they were out on the ocean. To listen and learn more about the podcast, go to discovery.com slash podcast. We'll also put a link in today's show notes.
0: Jawsome! And now we'll do a quick recap. Ashley, what did we learn today?
1: Well, we learned that when researchers search for underwater species, they look at everything from the last place they were seen to the types of water temperatures and prey species they like. Basically, they consider the whole ecosystem, then zero in from there.
0: We also learned that fluorodiving is like using a black light to make stuff underwater glow, and that might be how some sharks see, which is totally lit.
1: And just to be a pedant, it's not really a blacklight. It's more on the blue spectrum. But still, it totally looks like a blacklight.
0: It would still be fun to have a rave with. Definitely. And speaking of raving, I leave a rave review to the citizen scientist with a diving hobby who discovered an ornate sleeper ray with his camera. Turns out you don't need to be an academic or a researcher to contribute to science, which you should know by now, listener, if you've been listening to Curiosity Daily for a while. But we'll keep reminding you.
1: And we learned that, according to Harvard professor Svetlana Boym, there are two types of nostalgia. Reflective nostalgia lets you feel good feelings from the past, which is good. But restorative nostalgia makes you want to recreate the past, which isn't as healthy, since you can't really do it in the first place.
0: Unless you have a time machine.
1: Which would be awesome. If you want to talk about nostalgia, for me, the smell of lime flavored lip balm always makes me feel exactly like I am in eighth grade. And like gives me all the same feelings, which are not good feelings. Like (laughs) I feel very not sure of myself and and awkward. But yeah, I actually avoid lime lip balm for that reason because I always wore lime lip smackers. And even fancy grown up brand lip balms these days still make me feel that way. Just the smell. Wow. Lime. Yep.
0: Okay. I'll keep that in mind. All I know that is whenever I'm feeling nostalgic and I look up a cartoon theme song from the 90s, never disappoints. Oh. I don't think there's ever one I've looked up and I'm like, this doesn't sound as good as I remember. No, they're all pretty great.
1: (laughs) That seems like a very healthy use of nostalgia.
0: Granted, I have all of the lyrics to DuckTales memorized, but I'm talking about the extended version, too, from the movie, not just the minute long TV version. There's many verses. (laughs) Awesome. Today's last story was written by Ashley Hammer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily.
1: Script writing was by Cody Goff and Sonia Hodgin. Curiosity Daily is produced and edited by Cody Goff. Reflect on all
0: the great times you've had with us here at Curiosity Daily, then join us again tomorrow as we wrap up Shark Week to learn something new in just a few minutes.
1: And until then, stay curious.